0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: So, guys, I did something today that I have basically not done since March.
0: What's that? Changed your socks. (laughs) Took Uh, a shower.
1: I I haven't been wearing socks since March, but it's not a question really of changing them since they just basically don't exist. No, I had lunch... With two colleagues.
2: Hmm. Wow! In person. In, In person? person. At a restaurant.
1: At a restaurant. What's a restaurant? <laughs> yeah, it was super pleasant. It was gorgeous out, and Dan Byman and Jen Williams and uh, Vox and I got together and we had lunch. Oh and I God. have just returned from it. It's like it almost reminded me of what life used to be like.
3: Did it all come back to you? Did did, did you feel like you, you remember how to like order from a waiter and like use a fork and sit at a table?
1: I mean, granted, we were wearing masks and shoveling the food under the masks, <laughs> oh. which Good is
0: awkward.
1: <laughs> at least you put the mask down to, before you put the food in. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. We we sort of scooped the food up with the masks and then shoveled it into our mouths with the
2: forks. Oh okay. ew. Yeah. That's
1: kind
2: of, yeah. leave out no details for the listeners
1: please tell me you wore socks <laughs> uh i can neither confirm nor no, deny God. Oh, God. the presence of socks
3: hello and welcome to rational security the could have done more edition i'm shane harris that just sort of sums up the world right now doesn't it could have done Coulda, more.
0: Coulda, shoulda, woulda.
3: Could have done more. Could take less.
0: We just need to stop looking backward. We have to look forward. It's not about what we could have done.
2: It's about what we will do.
1: Tomorrow is a mystery. It's about the things we will regret not having done.
0: Oh, ouch. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oof.
3: <laughs> got real dark real quick. <laughs> It depends over there, still trying to eat through his mask.
1: <laughs> <laughs> somebody oh. needs to invent that the mask oh. that you can actually get food through, but not coronavirus. Well, yeah, someone should.
0: I know what they would call it. What? Mask hole. <laughs>
1: I think that word's taken
3: already. <laughs> Probably. If not, get the URL. I am here in the virtual jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. It is in a lovely fall day in Washington. We had our... Equinox was yesterday, you guys. <clears throat> you know? It's like...
0: It's all darkness from here. <laughs>
2: exactly. That immediately just darker, made me think, oh, God. Darker.
3: We're going to focus on the positives this episode, you guys. We're going to focus on you know, decent, decentuate the negative or whatever it is. Yeah, thanks. Uh, okay, yeah. On the podcast this week, a top member of the Mueller team says the special counsel could have done more to hold Trump accountable. A career government official accuses the White House of improperly trying to stop John Bolton from publishing his memoir, and the CIA is clamping down on intelligence about Russia, according to a new report. Uh, Let us start with the news that Andrew Weissman, one of the top prosecutors on Robert Mueller's investigation of Russian election interference in 2016, and we have to specify which round of Russian election interference we mean now, uh, is out with a new book slash behind-the-scenes a memoir about his time as part of that office. Uh, He is unsparing in his criticism of the president, who he calls lawless and, quote, like an animal clawing at the world with no concept of right or wrong. Uh, He also blasts Attorney General Bill Barr as essentially being Trump's witting accomplice, Weitzman also faults the investigators, including himself. He told The Atlantic, quote, There's no question I was frustrated at the time. There was more that could be done that we didn't do. Uh, And he told uh, The Post in an interview with my colleagues that he faulted Mueller for not stating plainly that he had concluded Trump obstructed justice, which Weissman said the evidence showed. Uh, And that's something that we've talked a lot about in the podcast on the past as well. So Ben, start us off here. Talk to us about the significance of these critiques. And I think we should all can all say none of us have actually read the book yet. We're going off of the interviews and the fairly extensive uh, reporting on the excerpts. Um, But tell us about the significance as you see them. And as someone who has spent so much time with the Mueller report, do Weissman's
1: comments change your understanding of it? Well, so those are two very different questions. I think the significance of his comments are that they suggest that those of us who uh, read the report and said, this shows clearly that Mueller found extensive evidence of obstruction and chose as a prudential matter not to declare that he had done so, but to let those facts speak for themselves and kick it to Congress and a next administration for decision and adjudication were correct. And those who claimed vindication for the president as a result of a lack of a finding by Mueller that the evidence favored an obstruction prosecution, were incorrect. Now, uh, that seems to me the significance. It does raise anew the question of whether Mueller was so prudent and careful as to grossly undermine the nature and purpose of the report that he issued. I'll leave that question aside for now. I think the, the other question that you pose, does it change my understanding in any way? No, it reinforces my understanding, which was that this is a report written in the softest of voices and that there are a hundred places in it in which the sentence that would have delivered the punch was just not written. And some of those sections are in the obstruction discussion. Uh, but some of those sentences are, mm-hmm. you know, with respect to non-criminal findings, as the SSCI report made clear, uh, some of the those sections are in volume one, the part on Russian collusion and uh, where – you know, Mueller assiduously avoids discussing the implications for non-criminal purposes of some of the evidence that he's churned up. I, I think the basic message, at least of these interviews, and I and I have not yet read the book, though I will. Um, the basic message of these interviews is not just we could have done more, but there was there was interpretive statements that we could have made based on what we did do that we refrained from doing. And the message from that, it seems to me, is read the Mueller report aggressively with the aggressiveness with which it was not written.
2: Yeah, so I think one of the most significant or interesting sort of questions is that Weissman wrote this book in the first place. Um, This is a really, really strong critique of the team he was a part of. And based on sort of the reporting, it sounds as though he places a lot of blame at the feet of Aaron Zebley, right? Really, really sort of names names. And it's frankly a little bit jarring to see that kind of, um, I I don't know, sort of score settling or airing of dirty laundry. Um, And there is something about it that while I'm obviously sort of really interested to hear about uh, the substantive information that that Weissman has in the book, um, there's something a little bit unseemly about that. You know, that said, uh, the case that Wiseman is describing, I I really do think is one of prosecutorial malpractice. So I agree with everything Ben just said, right? We already knew the report was sort of mealy-mouthed and being really careful, and you had to read it aggressively, and you had to read between the lines. And we already kind of knew the story of Barr and Trump sort of using Mueller's uh, integrity and sense of principle and fair play against him. Um, that, that coming, that that sort of bringing that mindset into, you know, sort of a, a fight with deeply bad faith actors, um, it ends up being indistinguishable from naivete. Um, certainly Wiseman's account underscores that and and sort of um, offers more rich details. But I, I also think that's something that's been uh, open, you know, sort of clear for a while now. Um, the part in which I, I do think Wiseman is really advancing the story, and, and I do think sort of investigative malpractice, uh, I don't sort of know how to describe it, Um, it sort of changes at least my understanding of what the special counsel actually did, Um, was that he is describing them being afraid and pulling punches. And I don't know if this is something, I, I think we actually talked about this on Rational Security or maybe on one of the Lawfare podcasts, but Ben, you and I had a conversation once about this idea that um, surely Mueller will leave no stone unturned. Um, and that we can really rely on him to conduct a very, very thorough investigation. What Weissman is describing is not a very, very thorough investigation, an investigation that is something short of that. And, And there are sort of particular thing is that he essentially says they were scared off of doing. Um, They never interviewed Ivanka Trump, um, even though she clearly plays a role in the events in question, because they were worried about sort of the perception of them being rough with the president's daughter. Totally unacceptable. Uh, Weissman doesn't say this outright, um, but they never offered immunity to Donald Trump Jr. in order to to compel him to testify. Uh, Weissman's account very, very strongly suggests that Donald Trump Jr. invoked the Fifth Amendment, um, not really pushing to get his testimony. Uh, Really, really questionable decision. And finally, and I think most critically and troubling to me, um, is Weissman's account. And this is based on sort of the New York Times uh, reporting on what the book says. He essentially says that Mueller didn't even press the question of sending a subpoena to Trump with Rosenstein. Because he knew that any conflict between the deputy attorney general and the special counsel would have to be reported to Congress. And so even though Mueller. Uh, wanted to subpoena Trump, wanted to get those answers, clearly thought that it was of important investigative value. Instead, what he did was sort of hinted to, to Rod Rosenstein about uh, what he wanted without ever making the request outright um, in order to spare him th- him the awkwardness of having to tell Congress if they disagreed. That's just not going to cut it. And the idea that the Mueller report represents the full accounting of what happened and as good a job as anybody could have done. um, I I think this uh, this uh, this account really sort of undermines that. You know, look, that said, I, I do think we have to ask the separate question of Would it have made a difference? Um, Yes. Had they sort of pushed these um, these investigative tools, had they embraced stronger language and been sort of more clear, actually accused the president of crimes, would it have changed the outcome? Um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that it likely would have changed the House's decision to not impeach for the Russia investigation and for the findings of the Mueller report. I think this could have actually made a difference. Um, that said, I don't think we can say in good faith that this would have resulted in the in the Senate actually convicting him. There's nothing in here uh, that is any more clear or or outrageous and egregious as uh, the evidence presented. Uh, in the actual impeachment inquiry related to the president's conduct on Ukraine. Um, and so I, I don't think that we can sort of impute, uh, you know, if only Mueller had had been a little bit stronger, um, you know, Donald Trump would have been removed from office. I, I think that's really unlikely. Um, that said, you know, I, I do think that this should change the completeness of how we regard the report and and a little bit... I don't want to say sort of taints Mueller's legacy, um, but certainly paints a picture of somebody who was bullied out of doing what he would have done in any other case. And if sort of the principles of integrity and fair play that Mueller purports to stand for don't lead to treating all investigative targets and subjects the same without regard to sort of their their uh, positions of power um, or their ability to fire you it's really, really hard for me to square those two things. Um, so I, I'm interested in reading the full book. Um, I, I don't know that it matters hearing the story now, um, but but I do think it should change the way we understand not just the report, but but actually the the project and the investigation itself. So I'm going to push back a bit
0: on Susan's analysis here because I think that there's a bit of a halo effect Problem In that analysis, when the Mueller team was stood up, it was stood up to do an independent investigation of the nature of Russian interference to help us as Americans and our government understand exactly what the Russians had done to us. It was stood up to prosecute people who should be prosecuted associated with that activity. And we all had a question about the president's involvement in that. But the purpose of the Mueller investigation was not to bring down the president. That was something that became a hope of many people over the course of Mueller's investigation. And it was a hope that was disappointed. And of course, we found out over the course of the Mueller investigation and after it was concluded uh, with the Ukraine investigation and then with the impeachment that the president is actually worse than we, uh, than we knew when the Mueller team was stood up, and he's more powerful than we knew, and he got away with it. So in light of all of that, we look back at the Mueller process and I think are naturally inclined to, to look for the reasons why it didn't save us from those outcomes. <laughs> there must have been something wrong with it. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that the Mueller investigation was flawless. And I think that it's it's useful and it's interesting to hear Weissman describe ways in which the team debated whether to sort of push more aggressively in ways that might provoke a response from the president, the way the the fear of being shut down by this impetuous president who so resented them colored their work. That is a problem. I'm not saying that there weren't real problems there. And you know, by Weissman's account, there was a degree of intimidation or prospective intimidation, if you will, that overshadowed the investigation. But I think that, you know, there's a market for Weissman's analysis. And perhaps Weissman is motivated to write this analysis now because of all the outcomes since that make us feel like, oh come on, we must have known more. There must have been more we could do. How on earth did we end up in this horrible situation? Well, let's blame the Mueller investigation. And I think that that's post facto evaluation.
2: Yeah, though to sort of to, to respond to that, I, I take all of those arguments. I, I do, and and obviously, um, sort of political or policy disappointment in the outcome um, inevitably that gets sort of uh, you know there's some wish casting on sort of what what Mueller's project was. Um, you know, that said, um, I'm not talking about sort of the Mueller's job was to take down the president mueller's job and and as as a contextual matter, as a matter in which we all understood what he was doing, regardless of sort of the narrow technicalities of the DOJ mandate, Mueller's job was to present as comprehensive and clear a picture of what occurred in two thousand and sixteen and all of the President and his allies and family members involvement with that activity as was possible to obtain using lawful investigative powers. And so, my criti- critique is not well. He should have said more. He should have lobbed more accusations. Though I think he should have. It's that he actually didn't turn over every single rock, every single stone. And so the the way this changes my understanding of the Mueller report is is that I it is far less. Complete a document um, that, that I believed it to be. You know, even whenever it came out, and it didn't inevitably uh, or ultimately lead to to impeachment and and you know Trump being marched out of the Oval Office.
3: All right. Speaking of people who could have done more, John Bolton. Remember him.
0: <laughs> he could have been a contender.
3: He could have been a witness in the
0: impeachment. Uh, John, John
1: Bolton. Bolton could have done anything.
0: He could have <laughs> done so many things, and yet
1: he could have been a contender.
0: That's what dude, I said. She just made
1: that joke,
0: dude. Where did you? are you?
3: Oh Where my god, you? that
0: is like the thing—the thing that happens when when a woman says something,
2: and then two minutes and later now guy- Tammy, you have it on tape. <laughs> <laughs> and can and can hold the prove <laughs> forevermore.
3: Hold the tape, as Lindsay says.
2: The stuff of every spouse's dreams. (laughs) Sorry.
3: (laughs) Oh, Ben, you and your socks. Uh, So this is from the New York Times lead. I will read right here. White House aides improperly intervened to prevent a manuscript by President Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, from becoming public, a career official said in a letter filed in court on Wednesday. Uh, accusing White House officials of making false assertions and trying to coerce her to join their efforts and suggesting that they retaliated when she refused. Uh, This letter, uh, 18 pages, comes from Ellen Knight, who was a lawyer, uh, sorry, was the official who oversaw the pre-publication review of John Bolton's manuscript, which is the process that he had to go through. Listeners will remember to essentially scrub it for classified information, have him remove anything that was classified, say, this is okay to add, this is not. Uh, And you'll remember as well that John Bolton, believing from his communications with Ellen Knight, that there was no classified information, went ahead and decided to publish the book. And then there was this sort of subsequent review that went on by the White House that that uh, Bolton uh, essentially says was illegitimate. And it looks like now this filing from Knight may have some information in there to back him up. So- Susan, we talked a lot during the impeachment appearing about why Bolton wasn't coming forward to say what he know, knew specifically about the Ukraine affair, because he was there when he was a national security advisor, and there were various legal and political, and I think we concluded, financial considerations for Bolton in play there. He wanted people to buy his book. The Times is now reporting that an aide to Trump instructed Knight to temporarily withhold any response to a request from Bolton to review a chapter on his dealings with Trump in Ukraine so it could be released during the impeachment trial. DOJ is reportedly looking at criminally charging Bolton as well. So a lot going on here. And I'm curious if you think this account now from Knight, who was the the classification reviewer, bolsters Bolton's case that he was right to publish the book when he did, even though he had not received the, you know, sort of formal letter telling him it was okay to do so.
2: So, I don't know that it bolsters... Bolton's case, um, or or justifies his decision to proceed without obtaining, you know, full pre-publication review. Right, your um, uh, your pre-pub obligations are not to wait until you're pretty sure that there's not classified information, but to wait until you actually have formal sign-off. Um, that said, this strongly supports both Bolton's claim that the holdup uh, related to his manuscript was entirely politically motivated, um, and it strongly now. Supports Supports Bolton's assertions um, that he is being targeted by the Department of Justice for criminal investigation as a matter of pure political retaliation. That might be true. And also, there might be some genuinely classified information in this document uh, or in Bolton's manuscript. Um, You know, look, and and this is an easy case to, um, you know, sort of say, let them fight uh, and, and enjoy karma visiting both sides.
1: The Iran Iraq War. (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly right there there is sort of a temptation to to have that kind of response um And John Bolton is a really bad actor who behaved really, really badly and brought a lot of this on himself by attempting to game the system for financial purposes or political purposes or to serve his own ego in a way that was deeply unpatriotic and actively harmful to the national interests of the United States of America. That said, um, if the pre-publication review process and pretextual investigations regarding Uh, the sharing of classified information, can be used to railroad a bad man, in this case, John Bolton. They can also be used to railroad a good man. And so this is a case in which the brazenness of the abuse, the clear pretext, uh, both of Trump and the White House abusing the powers of the presidency, the powers of the executive branch, uh, in uh, inserting political considerations in order to censor speech, in order to prevent a former employee from engaging in um, First Amendment protected activity, uh, including the publication of criticisms of the president of the United States that are not classified in nature, um, and that the White House is now compounding that abuse, uh, or the Department of Justice is abetting that abuse by now launching um, what is a specious and pretextual investigation uh, into a criminal investigation into John Bolton. Um, an investigation itself is abusive in this instance, and, and I really think people should be um, have their hair on a lot more on fire than than they do um, about what is pretty clearly going on right now, um, and and look the the sort of the specific details that Ellen Knight uh, lays out in this letter that she's written about um, the intervention by Michael Ellis, the timing. Um, I, I do think that those are things that probably ultimately prove fatal to any criminal case against John Bolton. Right, that it ha- because she had given him sort of re- reasonable preliminary reassurance that classified information was not in the book. Uh, you know, there's still a strong case that he uh, violated his contractual obligations, and he did, in fact, violate those obligations. Um, but the idea that uh, I think this would would seriously compromise an argument that uh, John Bolton sort of possessed the necessary mental state to have violated the relevant law in this question. Um, you know, so, so to that end, I, I do think it's significant, but um, this is another case of like the president just boldly brazenly abusing the powers of his office and um and it comes amid so many other abuses and it's so unsurprising that everybody's just kind of shrugging
0: let me make a different point i think what's really interesting here is that a mid career civil service officer from the archives on a detail to the White House decided to just go full tilt against this bullshit like went outside hired a lawyer you know and filed in this in this court proceeding I think it's fascinating and it is an example of something we have seen pretty rarely but I think we are seeing more of now, I don't know what her employment circumstances are. It may be that, you know, she she felt like pretty safe that the White House could kick her out of the White House, but they couldn't fire her. Civil service is fairly protected in a lot of ways that military like Lieutenant Colonel Vinman or foreign service are not. But I think it's really interesting that she just went ahead and did it. And I think that it may be that we're at a different point in this administration now where people who have been working inside um, and seeing all kinds of improper things going on are now more assertive about finding opportunities to tell their stories. And so I wonder whether this is the beginning of a a trickle or a flood of such stories about a direct abuse of power at the behest of the president's closest advisors on behalf of his personal slash political interests.
3: And, and just because you feel like that is that bolstered by the fact that people think that Trump is likely to lose and they feel he's politically weakened and we're sort of or is it more like it's now or never people, you know, I speak think it's, or forever, I think it's peace. probably
0: a bit of now or never. It might be that people believe he's about to lose. That gives them courage. But, you know, imagine if he wins, then what are they waiting for? Right? So I, I, mm-hmm. I do think there's a bit of now or never about it.
1: Ben. So I think what's really interesting here is that, you know, this mid-career civil servant on a detail to the White House goes out and hires a lawyer <laughs> and just <laughs> calls bullshit on all of this.
0: Oh, my. Ben that's an amazing point. <laughs> <laughs> how
3: d- <laughs> ben, how did you come up with that?
0: I mean, really. <laughs>
3: How is it that you managed to eat lunch and like get food through a mask and come up with these original insights? He's amazing. He's
0: so brilliant.
1: I
2: don't know. You know,
1: uh, it was just, I was just sitting here, you know, and it just came to me.
2: I'm (laughs) struck by brilliance. (laughs) All right. I
1: actually have a serious point, which is that, you know, one should be able to hold two ideas in one's head at the same time. And this is actually really a distillation of a lot of the things that Susan was saying. But it is possible to keep in your mind at the same time that John Bolton behaved in a way that almost anybody engaged in would really fear criminal consequences and that the White House behaved abusively toward him. You know, uh, you know. at the same time that John Bolton was going through that process, Pete struck was going through a pre-pub review process that was similarly delayed, that was every bit as unfair and unreasonable. And, you know, he actually went along and played by the rules and published his book. You know, John Bolton is trying to get away with something here that nobody else in the world would likely have the gumption to do without fearing very serious consequences. Uh, it is also possible, even while saying John Bolton is a raging asshole and is not playing by the rules, to say that the White House is abusing those rules. And, you know, that the those two things which happen to coincide with the common sense idea that, you know, John Bolton is an egomaniacal jerk and the president is even worse.
0: And, and both of them are the kinds of guys who, if a woman made a point in a meeting, they would take ownership of it.
1: Uh, that's right and both of them are the kind of people who that's yeah exactly right i i i could not put that better myself and stealing your thought for the third time in a single show i uh, wouldn't be a good joke
3: um i will jump in here too and just to make make an observation that I think you can argue that uh, what Knight is doing here is something that is perhaps long overdue uh, in the past four years for for a different reason, not just sort of you know calling BS or calling out White House officials on their intervention, but there has been this just lingering anxiety, maybe not entirely justified, that the pre-publication review process is being abused. For former CIA officers, for other intelligence officials, you know, some will tell you that their their work takes longer than they think it should to get through clearance. Now, some will also say it's getting through just fine. But it, it is nice, I just will say, as an advocate of the First Amendment to see somebody coming forward and saying, no, this is not how this process is supposed to work. This process is here not just to protect people's First Amendment rights, but it's here for a public good. We do deserve to be able to hear from former officials and for them to write their books, even when they are paid ridiculous amounts of money and don't testify about what they know publicly. That said, um, there's a process and it has to be preserved. And it just strikes me as, you know, score one for uh, believers in the First Amendment that Ellen Knight had the guts to come forward and say bullshit on this and call it out what is... What she's describing is just simply not the way this process works and was never designed to work this way. Can I get an amen?
0: Amen.
3: Okay. Word, dude. Nobody made that point already, right? Just being clear. All right.
1: (laughs) I do think the point would have been better if you'd called her a mid-career public servant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This This has gone further off the
3: rails than we normally go. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's switch gears to talk about uh, not a mid-career public servant, but a public servant nonetheless, who is the subject of a very interesting uh, article by Politico this morning. Uh, Natasha Bertrand and Daniel Lipman uh, co-authored this piece. I'll just read from their reporting in the lead. The CIA has made it harder for intelligence about Russia to reach the White House, stoking fears among current and former officials that information is being suppressed to please a president known to erupt in anger whenever he is confronted with bad news about Moscow. They report that nine current and former officials said in interviews that CIA director Gina Haspel has become extremely cautious about which, if any, Russia-related intelligence products make their way to President Donald Trump's desk. Haspel has also been keeping a close eye on the agency's fabled Russia house, whose analysts she often disagrees with and sometimes accuses of purposefully misleading her. Tammy, the story doesn't go so far as to say the CIA isn't spying on Russia anymore or isn't collecting and reporting what it knows about what's happening in the Kremlin, but it does make a strong case and I can say that my own reporting backs this up to a degree, that Russia-related intelligence is getting an extra scrub at the agency, an extra scrutiny, and it's certainly from the point of view of some people inside. Um, that is largely because Haspel is trying not to incur Trump's wrath at the same time that she ensures that the agency can continue to do its job. And you know, this is very much, I think, a bureaucratic and political tightrope that she's walking. And I'm curious, especially since you've worked inside a big government agency, how do you think she's managing that? Is she being successful here or does it look like she's succumbing to political pressure?
0: Okay, so I, I want to come to that point in a minute. But I want to preface it by saying that this Politico story comes on the same In the same 24 hour period as a report from Josh Rogan in the Post, Mm -hmm. that the CIA um, has found that Putin himself and his top aides are probably directing the Russian foreign influence operation for 2020 against Joe Biden. And so, you know, we face a question not just about. what Russia-related information isn't going to the White House, but also, you know, is the CIA shading its Russia analysis overall or hiding the conclusions of its Russia analysis overall in ways that impact the public and ways that impact our national security? I do think, you know, the question you ask, Shane, about the tightrope that she's walking, to me, is very reminiscent of what we talked about in, you know, with Weissman's book, which is, you know, Weissman describes the Mueller investigation kind of worried about provoking the president, like poking the bear and getting a response that would make him so angry he would fire Mueller and shut down the, the investigation. And the Politico article, likewise, describes You know, sources who work in the White House saying that the national security advisor doesn't ever want to bring Russia stuff in front of the president because it makes him so angry. And so there's this parallel, you know, fear about poking the bear. And that is very troubling. It's troubling in both cases. Like I said, with respect to the Mueller investigation, it's a kind of prospective intimidation. And when it comes to the intelligence community, I mean, I think what you're hearing from the sources that are quoted in that Politico story, the intelligence community sees its mission as speaking truth to power. And so if Haspel's being intimidated from sending forward the intelligence community's truth, that is subverting the mission of the community. But I don't know that that is necessarily the reason why, you know, this Russia intelligence is getting higher scrutiny Maybe it's because she has a personal vendetta against some of the people in the Russia House. There are indications of that in the story. But I think we could speculate about other reasons. Maybe Haspel is worried that someone in the White House, who knows, could even be the president himself, is sharing our Russia-related intelligence with outside parties. Maybe even with the Russians. Maybe the CIA has information about ways in which the president may be compromised with respect to Russia, information that has been speculated about widely over the last four years. Uh, And so they don't want to send information forward because they fear for the security of intelligence sources and methods. Maybe they're worried that the president is going to do what he's done in other cases and reveal classified information to the public in ways that could harm our national security. So I, I guess, you know, my takeaway from this story is that we don't actually know why she's doing what she's doing. The Haspel critics that are quoted in this Politico story, they seem to want her to kind of go Rambo, go speak truth to power. We don't care if the president doesn't want to hear it. You go over there and tell him anyway. Um, I guess I would say two things about that. Number one, she isn't an independent you know, executive authority. She works for the president of the United States. He is her client. So, she needs to be respectful of his preferences. And number 2, if we are actually horrifyingly in a world where giving him more information is more dangerous to national security than holding back that information from him, then I can only be grateful for her decision to do that. So, I, You know, if I were an oversight committee, I would want to try to talk to her behind closed doors and figure out what's going on here and what's motivating her. But I just don't think we know.
3: Yeah, it, it's, it's a conversation, interestingly, that I end up having this same question with so many people. And it kind of how they answer depends on where they sit. I mean, if you are sort of a more, I think, defender of the the institutional prerogatives of the agency, which is to say it's important that we have strong collection and strong analysis and strong technical acumen and all the rest – you know you want to see her sort of stand up for the workforce and you know take it for the team and you know people will famously talk about Leon Panetta as a director who came in with no experience in the intelligence committee but very quickly won the admiration of the workforce by standing behind them by defending the work that they had done under the George W Bush administration including the interrogation program and then there are people who I think you know are are more of a view that I guess the CIA director is supposed to be more of a kind of a you know, a non-political actor and that her job is to basically make sure that the place doesn't get torpedoed uh, and just to sort of keep out of the president's crosshairs, I have to say, if you're of a mind that that's her job, she's succeeded considering she's lasted as long as she has. And for as many times as the president takes shots at the deep state, you know, he hasn't gone in and tried to gut the leadership of the place the way that arguably happened at the director of national intelligence office, uh, where, you know, he appointed Rick Grinnell and he kicked out Joe McGuire and, you know, the inspector general. Was fired. Gina Haspel has basically chosen all of her own people, all of her top people, and for the most part has sort of withstood, uh, you know, the slings and arrows. I guess from from Pennsylvania Avenue. So uh, it, it's a fascinating question, and I think this this article really kind of raises the stakes of that because now it's putting a finger on something and saying, okay, look, the strategy that she's taking here—it's having real consequences in the way that we do our job, uh, Ben.
1: Yeah. So uh, there are a couple of really odd things about this story. And I say that not in criticism of Natasha uh, at all, whom I uh, think very highly of. But there are things that, as Tamara points out, make it hard to understand exactly what the story means. So one of them is the point that Tamara made, which is it's not clear at all why Gina Haspel is withholding information from the White House. Is it to avoid presidential temper tantrums? Is it to avoid spillage? Is it to avoid the the CIA losing prestige by the president rejecting its conclusions? Is it some combination of those, right? So is this an effort to do the president's bidding or is this an effort to protect the institution from the president or some combination of the two? Uh, That's thing number one. Thing number two, uh, which is... Uh, a point that really jumped out at me is the role of the CIA's general counsel in this story, Courtney Elwood. Courtney Elwood uh, has been a controversial figure at the CIA. It is a very strange thing to, as this story reports, have her basically reviewing all the work product from the Russia house. And, uh, you know, there's one thing the... Uh, CIA general counsel isn't is an intelligence analyst, and it's not clear to me anyway why there would be strong legal equities in what this entity was saying about you know Russian intentions on a routine basis. There may on an individual basis, there uh, sure legal questions come up, but the idea that the agency's general counsel is Routinely reviewing Russia House work product is kind of unexplained in the piece, Um, I assume because it's opaque, including to Natasha, but I, I found it very strange.
2: Yeah, so I agree with everything sort of everybody said so far in terms of, um, you know, the, the interesting questions that the article uh, raises. Um, there's something else I, I think that's sort of an interesting takeaway from it. Um, and that's what it reveals about Haspel's management style and actually how she governs the CIA, essentially. And so it talks about her calling people liars, that she calls analysts liars because uh, she doesn't agree with their analysis of the intelligence. Uh, quote, she calls analysts liars all the time, said one former CIA official. Liar. Um, it just de- <laughs> it describes um, a CIA director that is, you know, not somebody who is uh, overseeing a process that allows A healthy diversity of views to come up to the top. Um, This is describing a process that is sort of has echoes of the worst moments of the CIA's history, Um, its biggest intelligence failures in which leadership had committed itself to a point of view, committed itself to points of prejudice against uh, various shops within the agency that were producing intelligence and making analysis. And so sort of Separate and apart from the larger question of how she is managing up to Trump um, and whether or not what exactly the motivations are in not getting the intelligence out there, the sort of intelligence related to. The the threat from Russia, the Russian election threat, uh, sort of the the, the Russian threat to the United States more broadly, you know, while while, you know, we've talked on this podcast about, um, you know, potentially larger threats coming from um, from places like China, still the immediacy and the urgency of sort of concerns about Russian activity, um, the idea that this is how Haspel is is running her shop um, and is running her agency. That that this raises really really serious questions about just um, uh, her competence and uh, and efficiency as a manager. Um, and when they're uh, you know historically when we have dysfunctional management in intelligence agencies for any number of reasons, from political bias to personality style to, to any other number of things, um, the the end result is in a compromised to the national security interests of the United States. And so, um, you know, I, I imagine um, uh, it'll take a long time before we get sort of the full picture of uh, Haspel's tenure at the CIA and what, it, what exactly it looks like. But man, there are some red flags in here that, that there might be something deep dysfunctional. Mean boss. <laughs>
3: I'll just make a quick uh, closing point on this before we move on. And another plug for the First Amendment. Um, it has been well reported, and I've written this too, that Gina Haspel does not engage with the press. She doesn't do the usual kinds of sit downs or even backgrounders with journalists to talk about the state of the world or the agency her choice. I think it's a very clear choice. She thinks that it's not her job. This is a clandestine intelligence organization after all. Uh, I will only say that when you don't talk to reporters, people go out and tell your story for you. (laughs) And that a lot of the mystery that surrounds her management style here, uh, you know, I'm not saying she would clear it all up by giving interviews, but, um, you know, not trying to influence the story in any direct way. Results sometimes in stories that create these kinds of questions. Just saying. So, you know, anyway, call your friendly neighborhood reporter. Um, let's move on to
1: object lessons. Uh, I think we have two this week. Ben, why don't you go first? So several weeks ago, I, as my object lesson, gave a shout out to the podcast uh, called The Promise Podcast, which is a uh, English language weekly Rational Security-type podcast from Israel uh, run by Tammy and my friend Noah Efron. And this week in listening to the show, I was amused and surprised when one of his listeners called him out for not responding. This is apparently a person who listens to both Rational Security and the Promise podcast, And wrote in to Noah asking, how were you raised? How were you raised? Because (laughs) Noah often starts the show by uh, saying, you know, I don't mean to brag. That's not how I was raised. And uh, then saying something about himself And so this uh, person called Noah out uh, to Noah's amused embarrassment for not having acknowledged uh, the shout out from rational security, which he then warmly gave. Uh, And so I will just say, I'm not going to gloat on this point, Noah, that's not how I was raised. Um, (laughs) But I I do want to say the shout out to the Promise podcast was most sincere and was not at all intended to elicit uh, reciprocal feedback, though I am more than grateful for it. And I'm glad that you enjoy Rational Security. Also, I want to note that uh, when Noah was describing Rational Security and mentioned that Tomorrow Wittes was also uh, regularly on it, the other members of the Promise podcast erupted in applause. <laughs> um, so maybe we should do a, uh, crossover episode sometime. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, thematic material that they deal with that we don't and that we deal with and they don't, but they're lovely people. They're interesting. And, uh, they have a spirit that is not wholly unlike our own.
0: Well, and can I just say, I was most delighted in that whole incident by the fact that there is someone who listens to both of our podcasts regularly enough to note Noah's mission and cares enough about both our podcasts to reach out about it. So to Alan and to everyone, all three of you who listen to both Rational Security and The Promise podcast, we love you.
3: You are the super fans of this universe. That's great. Um, my object lesson, I'm very excited about this. My object lesson today is the Object Lesson. Uh, the Object Lesson is a Citra Double India Pale Ale with strawberries, vanilla, and lactose. It is a beer uh, brewed right here in Washington, D.C. No yes, way. indeed. We have a beer called The Object Lesson. That is
1: the best thing that has ever happened to this podcast.
3: Right? Yeah. I mean, come on. Obviously. Obviously. You're welcome. Uh, this uh, this beer was shared with me, actually a couple of them, uh, by a, uh, a fan of the podcast uh, who was uh, delighted, as am I, as are we all, that there apparently is a beer with our name on it, kind of. Um, I'm going to put a picture of the can up. It's a very pretty can Woo-hoo.
2: with a blue
3: label and like scoops of like strawberry sherbet. Uh, and if the description or that didn't indicate yes, this is a rather uh, sweet beer. I might even call it a dessert beer. <laughs> what? Could, sort of, you know, if you if you in place of your Sauterne or your you know ninety six Chateau de Chem, have an object lesson instead. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it before dinner, and now I think I should have had it after. Or you could make a float out of it. You could drop some vanilla ice cream into your beer. That's
1: a thing yeah so vanilla ice cream with single malt scotch goes really well by the way oof, that sounds real good right now <laughs> Jeez,
3: sorry gotta go uh but thank you very much uh to our friendly listener i enjoyed the beer and i will enjoy uh the second one as well and i will uh, check out blue jacket dc the brewery go get yourself uh, a six pack there uh,
1: and now is a good time to do that because we've reached the end of the I got to say, again. maybe we should reach out to them and have special rational security labels printed for the beer.
3: You know, I mean, mm. get on it, my
1: friend. That would
0: and be then just you fine. you could buy it.
1: Oh, you could buy it. You can't. But maybe we could make a special, <laughs> special arrangement. Uh, I will reach out to the brewery, uh, Shane, if you send me the, the picture of the can. You're going to see it. You're
3: going to see it. Uh, Lawfare, of course. Pfft, Lawfare. What am I talking about? Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. We're going to open a liquor store online at boozefair.can.
0: Yeah, boozefair.can. <laughs> it's it's right. working
3: real well
1: for you, Shane. <laughs>
3: LawfairStore.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please do be sure to leave a rating and review. We love to see them, and it really helps other listeners find the podcast as well. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, Music this week by Andrew Weissman and his mournful take on an Edith Piaf classic, Je Recreate Tout. I like it. That kind of went over like a
1: lead balloon.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I love it. You should have I just, should have just repeated the last thing Tammy said. <laughs> <laughs> that
3: would be good. Or that Sophia Yan says. Because there you, know.
0: you there you go.
3: On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.